My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Candace Gottlieb-Clark. Candace is a renowned author, business advisor, coach, and conflict management specialist. She founded Dynamic Team Solutions to help businesses strengthen their leaders and teams through enhanced communication, teamwork, leadership, and conflict management. Along with her team of expert coaches, trainers, and facilitators, Candace has successfully worked with private companies, public institutions, nonprofits, and governmental agencies and industries, including entertainment, education, medical, legal, financial, manufacturing, and professional services. Candace holds a master's degree in counseling and is a board-certified executive coach. She is a sought-after keynote speaker and writer on topics including leadership, communication, and team dynamics. Candace is a contributing writer with Forbes Coaches Council and has been published in Business Insider and other mainstream publications. Her newly published book, Find, Fix, Fill Your Leadership Gap, uses a narrative of real stories to illuminate key lessons in trust, role clarity, and conflict management for leaders of all types. So everyone listening, you're in for a treat. Candace is amazing, and I uh, can't wait to dig into her book and, and learn all about her. So uh, thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me, Candace. Dave, it's a pleasure. And, you know, I appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you and broadly your audience. Um, you do a wonderful job of leading a great podcast. and I'm really pleased to be a part of it today. Awesome. Thank you. Well, let's, uh, let's start off with where it all began. Uh, where were you born and raised? And, and what was your early life like growing up? Well, I, I love that you just get right into the roots of people. I think that's awesome. Um, I'm from Los Angeles, California, one of the few people that can actually say they're a native. Um, in fact, um, my children who were born there, although we don't live there now, were third generation native Los Angelinos because both my parents were also born and raised there. So, you know, we've got some roots that most people can't claim um, in the LA area, but, you know, as most people can attest, it's different now than it used to be. Um, you know, and I think you know, growing up, I grew up with, you know, in a broken home, my parents divorced when I was about six years old and I'm in the middle of three daughters, three girls. And I think a big part of what became who I am and, and what I do as a career has to do with just being that, you know, I often had people mention, oh, you're a middle child. You must be a natural mediator. And even though that wasn't something they said until I was an adult, I became a natural, I am a natural mediator and I became, um, invested in that profession in my thirties, but you know, some of the things that happened along the way that really formed my career path happened, you know, around the, you know, junior high, high school years when my mom had a job where she was really miserable, but she was the breadwinner for our family because that's just the way it was. And she kept her job, even though she had a boss that treated her badly and she'd come home and she'd be just in a bad place. And it would be taken out on my sisters and myself, just anger, you know, 
being short, being at times downright mean. And it, you know, she was unhappy and I realized that. So it's like, you know, we'd always try and like be nice to mom, but there was that deeper piece of, you know, this shouldn't be the way it is, you know? And I, as I was in high school, I thought, you know, I want to go into businesses and I want to help people to get along. <laughs> and I didn't even really recognize until I'd come into my career doing that, that that was something I talked about when I was about 16 years old in the high school class where we were talking about our career passions. And, you know, I did a number of things <clears throat> before that involving myself in psychology and counseling and working in different areas. And I somehow found my way into this world. Um, when in my, I think I was very late twenties or early thirties, I had a career that I was not feeling great about and stumbled upon an opportunity, um, in the Los Angeles, uh, what was it in the LA times want ads. <laughs> tells you the timing of this, right? It was the year 2000. That was about a family court mediator that needed to have experience in um, counseling, that background. And I thought mediator, that sounds like a legal profession. And I quickly went about learning about it. And long story short, took some coursework in it literally the next week and ended up getting a couple of job opportunities at the end of that week that were affiliated with mediation, which was interesting because the course that I took, they said, you'll never get work in this paid work in this field. And within a week I had two offers. Um, it was like the path to my future was just kind of paved and waiting for me. And it was just something very natural for me to look at how people function at work and, and recognize they really need just a way to cut through the problems. And I saw mediation as a way to do that. So that's really how I initially began my career in, you know, what became dynamic team solutions. When, when you finished with high school, you, you decided to go to college. Did you go right into college after high school? Oh yeah. I went directly into undergrad school, got a bachelor's in psychology, um, UC Santa Barbara, go Gauchos, and uh, took a year off, traveled in Europe for a year, which was wonderful, and then went right into a master's degree program in San Diego in a field called rehabilitation counseling, which is counseling for largely areas of disability, not drug rehab. And that path didn't lead me exactly where I wanted to be because I wanted to be able to change the world for people that were struggling with disabilities. And, and really, there were some insurance related issues that kept me from that part of my field. So I kind of meandered a little bit in the different counseling professions and always looking for a place that I could be really proactive in creating change. I wasn't the sort of person that went into the counseling profession with a desire to have a profession as a counselor where I'd meet with people on a regular basis. I really wanted something that had like a real turning point of improvement and change, which is why the disability focus was so great because it was, okay, an acquired disability, helping this person to reach a better level of functioning was, you know, very cut and dry. There was a definitive uh, start, middle, end, if you will, to their progression, or at least clear, clear momentum. And like I said, when I got into the field of mediation, suddenly those skills of counseling, the intuition, the ability to kind of read people's emotions and their needs and know how to help them um, suddenly merged into a place where I could use those skills and really transform the ways people were experiencing other people. In your book, you talk about the gap. And yes. I wanted to explore that because the way that it sounded to me is you're referring to the gap as um, almost like your blind spot, you know, yes. being 
communicating with people to really find out what areas you're lacking in so you can fill that gap. Right. Well, and, and hopefully I'm going to answer your question accurately. Um, the gap is that really is anybody, especially leaders in particular, there are things they're not going to know. You know, we always hear that thing. There's this percentage of things, you know, the percentage of things you don't know. And then the broader part is the things you don't even know that you don't know. You're not even aware of the fact there's knowledge that you haven't even considered. It just never entered your mind. And so what I learned when I was working with businesses and organizations, especially in those early years, and I, my focus was on mediation, I, I routinely was seeing this pattern of the issues between these you know, two or sometimes three or even four individuals that are embroiled in conflict very often had threads right back to leaders, right back to somebody above them who was making choices or decisions or actions that were creating the environment for that or even stoking the flames. And I could see that you know, it seemed like these oftentimes, maybe not always seemed completely innocently happening, but who's going to tell that leader. And certainly people, if they even knew it was the leader's fault, which often they did not, they couldn't make it out. That's why the conflict would become more entrenched with the other person. They wouldn't be in a position to tell that leader and leaders often aren't in a position to tell each other because they can't see those mistakes. It takes really a a rare opportunity to see what's happening and to see what needs to be changed. And I saw myself as the conduit to making that change happen. And so early on, I realized, well, these, these conversations I'm having with leaders, which were desperately uncomfortable, telling them that they had to make the change in order for the conflict to actually stay gone. I instead began my engagements with business leaders who'd bring me in for things of this nature. And I'd say, if I find that some of this comes back to you, it, it threads back to you, how would you like me to let you know? And across the board, every leader in one manner or another said, well, of course it does, or just please let me know. Um, some in a self-deprecating way and they'd laugh, of course I know it's gonna come from me or saying, well, you know, a little surprised, but yeah, I suppose that could be the case and just let me know. And that, you know, illuminated that leaders Yes, they have this gap, but they desperately want to close it. They do want to know what to do. And they're just simply at a loss. You know, I refer to it in the book as the abyss, because it's not just that it's a gap you know about that you're trying to avoid. It's this unknown, this amorphous unknown of things that you're doing or not doing that create these issues. So um, that's the gap that I refer to. And, you know, I'm really happy that I was able to take my 20 years of experience working with businesses and, and coalesce that knowledge into a book I could share because my core desire, my passion is to change the ways work is. And so that people not only want to come to work, but want to work with each other. And, you know, work isn't a burden. Work isn't a place where you're just doing it for that paycheck, but you actually are excited to be among the people that are your colleagues and collaborators. Um, and so, you know, the more people I can educate and help grow in that way, the better the world will be and the happier I'll be. Was there an event or series of events that inspired you to write the book? Uh, yeah, um, I, I would say a series of events. My clients over the years, I do a lot of one-on-one um, -on -one 
coaching, consulting with my clients, not just the ones I'm helping with a mediation or a team issue or, or coaching, but other people in the organization that have an influence on that person's work to try and guide their support. I look at it as a very um, systemic level of change that I'm helping to bring. And so my reach goes, and it's I'm transparent with this, but it goes beyond the individual that's maybe receiving the support. And in doing that, you know, I'd often have my clients just say, oh, I just wish I could carry you in my pocket or or you've got to write a book so I can just keep this on my shelf and keep referring back to it. But these were just, you know, for lack of a better word, they were gifts that I have. I, you know, they were certainly honed with education, but, and experiences, but they were natural talents I possessed. And I had to, you know, find a way to put those into a comprehensive explanation. So other people had access to it, but multiple, multiple clients over the years would say, gosh, just write a book, just write a book. And so I had, you know, close to, I'd say two inches worth of notes and jots and intentions and outlines before I finally just said, I've got to commit and do this <laughs> so I can put it out there. And, and, you know, even though it's a done work, there's parts of me that is still editing it and still making it better because I just want it to be so, I just want it to be such a great handbook for leaders. Is there a primary audience that you wrote the book for? I mean, you said leaders, but is it primarily like large organizations, leaders of large organizations? That's a great question, Dave. And the answer is no. Um, in fact, I wrote it with sort of my own clientele in mind, which are leaders in organizations that range from anywhere. Some of them are smaller, but I'd say on average from 200 to 500 employees. And, you know, I work with leaders throughout the organization from CEO down to, you know, director level people. And occasionally when there's issues of conflict or team development, even people um, further down the, the pipeline. However, um, you know, my advanced readers, I had some of them say, gosh, this is something that needs to be in the hand of every student that's in an MBA course. This needs to be, you know, one of them, my daughter's in law school, but oh my God, she needs to read this. I already bought her a copy. And it was just this sense of these are really uniform lessons that are so broadly reaching. I've even had a number of people say, I already am applying this in my personal life. So I'm very proud of the fact that these are such natural lessons that can really be used in many places. And well, the audience was my own clientele. I really think that any leader is only leading their own team of maybe anywhere from two to maybe 20 people. And anybody that's leading people can really benefit from it. And even people that just look to be leaders or to be as people have told me, solid in their personal relationships can benefit from it. Can we talk a little bit about how you've structured the book? You know, so when readers open up the book, they kind of have an idea what to expect or, you know, it's uh, some, some books, especially, you know, some leadership books, you can just open it to any place in the book and take away some valuable information. And then there's others that really build upon the previous chapter. How, how did you structure your book? Uh, kind of both, um, largely, and, and you, you alluded or mentioned this in the introduction, I use narrative. So I use three different stories primarily of different leaders that I've worked with, and I anonymized several details to make it 
um, comfortable for them when they pick up the book to read as well. But I use three different stories to illustrate the different types of leadership and how their situations play out and where over the course of the book, the lessons are consistent, even regarding very different leaders, very different styles and very different or seemingly different problems that they were seeing. Um, so these three leaders take us through first find, you know, I tell the story of each one. And in that section, I find for the reader, what were the, the things that were wrong? And then the section, second part of the book is the fix where I talk again about that leader and what were the things that needed to be different? What did they need to do to fix? Which allows any leader who's reading this to reflect back on themselves. Oh gosh, I do that. Or I have started doing that and, and how to fix it just so they on their own can reflectively make changes to how they're leading. And then that last section, Phil, is, is sort of all the things I didn't have a reason to explain, particularly with those leaders, but what those gaps may have been that they had beyond what they were seeing. And, and that part really is in many ways, it's standalone, but because I still refer to these three leaders in the Phil section, I think it's helpful to have read the whole thing. So I think I mentioned in the fill section, you know, if you're starting here, that's fine, but you're going to miss some of the points that I'm making because it is built upon from earlier pieces. Um, and, you know, I love using story because I think it really helps for people to dig in and see a picture of something. And that gives you ability to remember the lesson in a way you might not, if it's just informative. And I try and do the same in my speaking engagements, use story so that people can, recognize themselves in it and, and not feel like anyone's pointing a finger. Can you in, enlighten us to maybe one of those prominent lessons in your book that you share? Absolutely. Um, there are three pillars that I refer to as the pillars of success. And I also liken those to a three-legged stool and those are trust, role clarity, and conflict management. And, and early on when I was talking about that, I had a member of my own team say, well, I just think conflict management, that's not really a leader's job. And I was like, it's entirely a leader's job, you know, and that ties into part of their role. And if they don't know that part of their role is managing conflict, it's going to get worse. And so, you know, each of these three very strongly um, connects and dovetails to the other two. They're, they're inseparable. But the trust one, I think, because it's one that most leaders um, really strive to enhance trust on their teams and miss the mark, uh, miss the mark in many ways. Um, I'd love to capture that for your audience for just a moment here. And what I, um, I explain when it comes to trust is that honesty is the lowest rung on that trust ladder. You know, honesty is expected, but I often hear leaders say, well, I'm always honest with them. You know, yes, great. That's... <laughs> That's a fundamental and people anticipate that you are, but there's a lot more that goes into developing trust on a team. And those other elements are transparency, which has to do with opening up and sharing more than just a fact. Um, your, your concerns about a project, your concerns about someone's performance, perhaps. It can be about timeline shifts that might happen, but you don't know yet. It can be any number of things, but by opening up and sharing those, it allows other people an exploration of what's going on and the ability to be ready and to pivot. And that makes them feel a lot safer when there's transparency and when they can feel genuinely that the person who's working with them is giving them everything they need to know 
in order to be successful and in order to ask the right questions. And that goes to another part, which is the openness. Openness meaning taking in those questions, taking in that feedback, even requesting it. What am I missing when I'm talking about this project and what we need to do? Um, what are things that I'm getting wrong? You know, just being really open to that, inviting that conversation. And when it comes to really welcoming a greater dialogue around it and modeling that also helps the entire team to start being more transparent, which allows teamwork to be better, more open, you know, allowing people to say, you know, that idea is not, not fleshed out. I'm seeing this and this and this. And when people can get to that point and the trust becomes more uh, collaborative in that faction, you also have people being more innovative. You have people more, more willing to throw out an idea because they don't feel like everybody's gonna clobber them in a bad way. They feel it's supportive of giving other ideas, giving more ideas to think about how they can support a different objective. So we've got the transparency, the openness, the honesty, which we brought about, and the fourth piece is respect. So even if you're completely transparent with your team and you're open and you're receptive, if you're disrespectful to your team, you are not going to develop trust. You know, that's a key piece of it. And if we pull together those four um, pieces, transparency, honesty, openness, and respect, it creates an acronym of THOR. And I actually realized that after I'd come up with those four components. So it was kind <laughs> of a fun awareness. Um, <clears throat> but THOR is a Norse god known for the mighty hammer that creates storms. But Thor is also known for safety and protection. And so what I implore my readers, and this is something I even say in the book, is when you have instituted and, and consistently brought about transparency, honesty, openness, and respect, that part of Thor, when you've inhabited all of that, you've brought safety and protection. But when you miss any one of those things, you've brought out on the mighty storms. One of the things that I, I just, I struggled with in my career, and it became something that I, I just was fascinated by that there, I mean, there's books and there's specialists. I mean, there's mediators. It's that, that aspect of conflict resolution that every great leader that I've ever known has been very well versed in, you know, conflict resolution, managing conflict within the team and helping a team move past those differences and find common ground. Um, in, your, in your book, do you address that? Do you talk about conflict resolution? Um, I talk more so about conflict management because conflict resolution is really something that most people do poorly especially when they're trying to do it for other people. Um, mediators are a rare exception to that in that that's our purpose, but we're also brought in when really the chips are all on the table, our chips are all down. You know, we have a big problem and it's gotten to a place where we need an outsider to help resolve it. What I talk about is how leaders need to manage conflict before it reaches that point, that there are things they can do to prevent conflict, that there are things they need to do to manage it and not in the ways that most leaders do. Um, you know, I actually have a section in the book where I bring about all the mistakes leaders make <clears throat> in how they handle conflict. And one of the biggest ones is that they don't even acknowledge it exists or they create quick fix solutions. So in terms of not acknowledging it, you know, some of the things that are most common is they feign ignorance. 
They know that there's whispering happening after the meetings. They know that there's back channel conversations, but they don't address it. They know that there is um, tension between individuals. They don't address it. They know that teams aren't functioning at their best. Again, don't address it. And part of it is that they don't know what to do. Part of it is that they've come to believe, and this is true of most people, oh, this is normal, it just happens. <laughs> right. And then there's a sense of it's minimizing it. It's, you know, whether they're telling themselves a lie or they genuinely believe it, they minimize it, say, well, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. Like I said, it can, it happens all the time. This is normal, you know, just different personalities. And they're just willing to write it off. And I'm a huge believer that that's not the case. Conflict is normal, totally normal, but the way it is pushed down and it, it, not acknowledging it causes it to fester and grow. It doesn't help it to suddenly resolve itself, which seems to be more of the belief system of the people I've worked with. And, you know, I've worked with truly thousands of leaders, and this is a very common thread is that their idea of how to manage conflict is very different than my own um, and is not actually resolving it. It's minimizing it, pushing it away, creating a quick fix, like, okay, you work on this team, you work on this one. You know, if, if you did that in, in a family and you, oh, you, you stay in that corner and you stay in that corner, does anybody ever feel better? No. And do they start looking for somebody to take their side because they feel so alone? Yeah. And it happens in companies too. And you end up with silos and you end up with divisiveness and it happens throughout all levels of an organization. So my whole focus on conflict is that you need to be comfortable enough with it that you don't let those moments where you see friction slide by. You put it on the table. You say, okay, this isn't good for how we work together as a team. What's wrong? And that is a level of resolving it, but really it's just putting it to the other people to resolve it themselves. And that's a large part of what I teach is how to be in a position to manage conflicts. And I, I use another acronym there. And I always feel silly bringing up two acronyms in the same, <laughs> same interview. But I, if you're willing to indulge me, I'll share the second one. Absolutely. Is it as cool as Thor? I think it might be even more so. It's oh. kind of up to you to decide which one you like more. <laughs> the second one, the second one, which has to do with conflict management, is that leaders need to remain calm. And the four letters um, stand for connected. Um, which comes right back to how you build trust, you know, building trust, being connected to your team where they feel valued, they feel um, respected, they feel that you want them to succeed. When those things happen, when they genuinely can tell you want them successful, you want them to be a part of the team, they're going to trust you to tell you about things that are struggling. They aren't going to just hide it from you because if they can tell that you're like, I need you at 100% every day, and you know you're down to 70%, and you know that leader wants you at 100, you might be more willing to tell them if you're connected, right? The second part is acknowledging the conflict. And this is what I just touched upon a moment ago, not minimizing it, but putting it out there saying, I noticed this, or productivity's down, something's wrong in the way we're collaborating. We need to figure this out. Just not letting those moments slide by, but putting it out there. And through acknowledging it, you can get a lot of people to recognize, oh, this does matter. And that can enhance trust because it shows that, okay, we're walking the talk. We're actually going to resolve the issues so that we can be a stronger team, so that we can figure it out 
because it doesn't have to be so messy. And, and some of the figuring it out things are often things that tie back to that third leg of the stool rule clarity. So we're going to set that aside for now. But um, so we've connect, we've acknowledged. Once you've acknowledged that there's an issue, a leader's job is to listen and learn. Find out what's happening. Ask them what's wrong. What is the impact on you? What do you see as solutions? What have you done so far? And let people really express themselves. Most people have done very little other than give the problem more time. <laughs> that's really, really common. I've waited to see them change and they haven't. Um, and that's how I know that they're evil. Uh, you know, <laughs> truly most people don't realize the impact they're having on each other. They only feel the impact on themselves. And so when somebody's suddenly treating them badly, they're aware of that. They're not aware of what they've done to create that situation. So a leader by listening and learning and asking those questions can really gain the other person's perspective, understand the impact and put themselves in a position where they can coach that person on what to do, not get in the middle, but provide that insight. You know what? I think you need to go talk to Reginald about what you just shared with me. And, and if you need a third party there, I can be there or somebody, whomever else could be there. But I think you just need to go to him and talk to him. Why don't we do a role play about that? Let's just kind of practice it out. I'm going to be Reginald and, you know, let's work out the kinks together. And, and then circling back and making sure that actually happens as part of managing it. So the coaching him, the coaching them, the following up to make sure they did that. You know, let's say it's Diana who needs to talk to Reginald. Following up with Diana, did you do that? How did it go? Did Reginald take in that information with you? Oh, he did. Are you seeing changes? No. Oh, well, then we're not really done yet. Let's keep looking at what we can do to help foster change. So when you're calm, connected, acknowledging the issues, listening and learning, and from that knowledge, being able to manage it, you can really have conflicts resolved among the people who are involved in them, which is the core of resolving conflict is the people closest to it are the ones that are needed to resolve it. So many different players in my career that it's like you're describing them really and when when i was coaching some young fire officers about you know the problem employees one of the things and, and i think a lot of it goes back to i think some people believe it's you've got to have the courage to address the elephant in the room to sure. address this situation. But when you actually genuinely care about the people that you're leading, when you genuinely care about them, that courage is, I mean, it's just there. It's, it's like natural. Like you don't really even think about, oh man, this is scary. It's you want to help them get mm -hmm. through it. And you'll do whatever it takes to help them achieve what, what they need to achieve. The problem is when the leaders really don't like the people that they've got working for them, you know, and, and changing that mindset, like your success is directly tied to their success. Mm -hmm. It behooves you to really genuinely care about them because they are good people. They want to achieve. Right. So how do you, how do you coach somebody to, I don't know, develop that, that courage or that compassion or that caring piece so that they can accomplish that conflict management? 
Well, it comes sort of as a step-by-step and it, it ties back to how they develop trust on their team and making the effort to start doing that. You know, having meetings that involve people, you know, and as the leader starting it, they have to be the role model for this or it will never happen. Being transparent and being open and taking in feedback and giving out advice and offering to support and asking for help and all of those things, which of course we know those are the things that are most meaningful when the chips are down, when there's a problem and you admit it's your fault, when there is a a problem and you don't have the answer and you're asking for other people to pitch in, people build trust because they're like, wow, this person is genuinely wanting us to work as a team, wanting us to collaborate. And, and it doesn't mean anybody's a failure that they need help. We all need help. And I think creating that atmosphere of it is a good starting point. And yeah, you're right. Sometimes leaders have reached that point where they're just, they don't like somebody on their team. And really, I think it comes from them investing in their own story of what the problem is rather than looking to resolve the issue. And it's helping to build their awareness in that and helping them to reinstitute a level of communication and trust with that person. And, you know, say, you know what, we aren't working well together, just as you might say, as if you were the intermediary and we need to be, you know, I feel like there's a friction from you. I don't know where it comes from, or I feel friction toward you because I'm noticing these flaws in how you're working on our team. And I have not been direct with you in the past, but your performance affects everybody. And it's concerning to me that you're not trying to change. And we need to figure that out because if you're going to be a part of this team, we need you to perform at a different level than you have been. So I think it's a, it's a lot of conflict avoidance, which leads to that. And conflict avoidance comes from fear. And as you mentioned, that lack of skill, not really knowing what to do. And those are what allow it to kind of fester. Two great acronyms. And I would encourage you not to shy away from using two acronyms within <laughs> a single interview. Thor and Calm, man, those are great. And so when I when I introduced you, yeah. I highlighted, you know, some of your achievements, some of your accolades, some of, I mean, you're so experienced and and knowledgeable in this realm of all of your achievements throughout your career what are you most proud of i'm going to highlight that you said in my career because i do also have children that i adore um (laughs) uh i think you know the book is definitely something i'm very proud of because it was such a laborious project, but something I deeply wanted to get out there. So I would say that's in many ways, my, my, you know, my crown jewel, um, because it allows me to express so much of what I've learned over 20 years and to, to condense it into something I can share with others in a few moments of handing off a book or having them click on Amazon and buying it. Um, But I, I also love that I've developed a business that organizations can call on and say, we're stuck. We don't even know what to do, but this is what's happening. And our teams are not where they need to be. Can you help? And, you know, it's really lovely to be able to do that. And I've developed a wonderful team of consultants that have expertise that matches mine and in many places supersedes mine. You know, I have my strengths, we all do, but it's lovely to have people that have additional strengths that, you know, can support 
other things. And so I'm really pleased to also have started a business that has allowed other organizations to thrive and also um, other consultants to be able to practice their skills in a way that really benefits everybody. You know, I love the win-win-wins that are possible in the world. Now, for those listening that would like to connect with you or uh, enlist your services for their organization or even have you come and speak at their event, what's the best way for people to get connected with you? I'd say the, the easiest way is my business website, which is dynamicteamsolutions.org. Um, I have an author page as well, which is a different website, which is simply my name, candacegottliebclark.com, um, and both feed to each other. But for you know people that are interested in having me speak, I love to speak. Um, I'm actually looking forward to a, a trip to Puerto Vallarta later this week to go speak for a conference group. Nothing like travel speaking <laughs> when it's yeah. to a gorgeous location in the in the wintertime. Um, but you know, I also want to invite anyone listening that's curious about the book to go ahead and um, check out on Amazon or on my website, and you can get two free chapters that will allow you to start reading the book, get a feel for it. And it, it gives largely some of the background of why I developed it um, and some information that leads into those three pillars. And hopefully it just, you know, encourages you to keep reading and makes you want to actually learn some of what I'm teaching both in your show today, Dave, and also in the book about how to really thrive as a leader or as a future leader. You know, what are the things you need to know to do really well? So I, I hope they'll reach out. I hope they'll find resources there and, and really take part in that. Yeah, and, and I would encourage everybody listening, definitely buy Candace's book. Um, I was lucky enough to get a free copy because I'm cool like that. But oh. man, it is such a great book. There is so much great knowledge in there. Uh, it's, you know, I, I like to set up the questions as if I haven't read any of it, you know, so that, but I, I felt myself wanting to talk all about it, but it, it's your book. So <laughs> <laughs> talk about it all you like. I am very uh, flattered that, that it rang uh, so true for you. And that yeah. it also, like you said, you know, it, it caused you to look back on so many of the, so much of the work you do and just see where those things are actually what, you know, what makes sense and what's happening. Before we go, there's one more thing that um, really had me curious. You know, you, you went to school and, and you studied psychology mm -hmm. and then you went into rehabilitation, like occupational rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. and, and then you moved into mediation. Mm -hmm. And at some point you became an executive coach. Was that like, you know, the bookend to your professional uh, trade schools, I guess? I don't know. Well, it's funny <laughs> you should ask. That's such a great question. Um, and, I, and I didn't include that in the story we were talking about at the beginning. Well, what happened was I had this, drive to do the mediation, to do workplace mediation, help businesses, help organizations. And I was getting called in on mediations and some organizations, it wasn't just a simple, okay, these two people have a conflict. It was this team does. And so I'm working with different dynamics within the team until everybody's, you know, paralleled issues are getting resolved. But there were people within those teams that I would see had just their own blind spots, gaps of what they were, they couldn't even see through 
the situations as we resolve them to the consistency in the behavior pattern that they had that was creating that. And so I began doing coaching with those individuals, just like, let me help you to explore what you obviously are missing about this, help you build that awareness and enhance those skills so that these stop happening. You know, you're not the instigator who then thinks they're the victim, which can often be the case. So that began the coaching piece, which enveloped into more, because as I mentioned, I do this kind of a more of a comprehensive involvement. And, you know, these organizations that would have me giving, you know, advice and wisdom would say, you know what, I think you really need to coach this person. And I want this person to work with you. And so it grew into more coaching, but I also had them sometimes work with me on something simple, or they saw me speak and they'd say, you were talking about stuff. It felt like you were talking about our organization. And I know we've never met before, but we have a team situation. Do you think you could help us with this? And so you know, it became this, well, let me think on that. I don't know. And I'd take some time and I'd come back to them a couple of days later. And I'd say, okay, here would be how I would structure a project to get to the heart of a matter that we can't quite figure out. And, you know, they'd say, that sounds amazing. Let's do that. And it would make such a huge difference that I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can say that's something I do as well. And so, you know, it's just like often happens in our careers, we stumble into an opportunity and it, it demonstrates itself to be something that we can make profound change. And so the team development thing became a big part of the work we do because it ties into the leader, it ties into the conflict, it ties into all these individual dynamics, but creates really an organizational wide change. And, and you asked earlier about size of organizations. And I said, teams of two to 20 teams are never very big. You know, they're always a manageable size like that. And when they're not, that's one of the first things I'll say is why is this team of 60 people all reporting to one person? That is a clear indicator that you have poor leadership. You know, the structure's a mess. So, you know, it's looking at those pockets, this team is dysfunctional and yes, it may pull to other things, but how do we help this team? How do we get them strong? And then we'll work on the next piece of the puzzle if there is a next piece. Well. Candice, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me today. Uh, again, your website, dynamicteamsolutions.org. Um, and your for your book, your, your author website is candicegottliebclark.com. Both of your websites feed one another. I'll have those links in the show notes. I am so thankful that you took the time today to to speak with me and share with my audience. I really appreciate it. This was this has just been great. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. It's been such a pleasure, and I'm excited to kick off 2023 with such a fun interview with you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.